Good morning. Welcome to Money Management. This is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane Office of the Opus 111 Group, and we're here as we are every Saturday morning at 9 to talk with you about the markets, the economy, and hopefully translate some of all that that's going on out there for you so you can make some good investment decisions. Uh, we had a pretty good week, uh, all things being uh, equal. Uh, we've had the markets higher, uh, kind of a turn of the last couple months. So we'll start with some market news, look at uh, some economic reports. I want to do a little Wayback Machine. I want to talk about uh, 1987 because I keep hearing, oh, this is a lot like 1987. Well, we'll see about that. Anyhow, we'll uh, look at the uh, outlook from some of the folks around the country, what they see in the markets. And again, a little more talk about inflation to hopefully clear up some of the um, confusion that's out there about that stuff. So yesterday, the, the Dow closed at a new high. Well, it wasn't exactly at a new high, but it did set a new high. It closed at 35,677. S&P also set a new high yesterday. That's the I guess, 57th time this year the S&P set a new high. Anyhow, it uh, last traded at 45.44. NASDAQ at 15,090. Russell 2000 ended the week at 2290. Gold settled at 1785 an ounce. Silver was at 2418 an ounce. Crude ticked up to 8376 a barrel. The 10-year Treasury was last bid at 1.64%, and soft white wheat up again at 1063 a bushel. You know, we're going into um, the best three months of the year, statistically speaking. Uh, the last quarter, October, November, December, typically are the best three months in the market overall, and Looks as if we're off to a nice start in any case. Next Wednesday, we will get the latest report on durable goods. And then Thursday, we'll get the latest on the third quarter GDP growth. I don't expect that it's going to be as high as it's been uh, in the last couple quarters, just because uh, you can't keep up those kinds of rates. It could even be uh, close to flat, but um, it, there will be two more revisions of that uh, uh, before the end of the year. Now, you remember those super scary times in the market? I'm not talking about Halloween. I'm talking about from September 2nd to October 4th when the market lost 5.2%. Well, <laughs> this past week, the Dow and the S&P joined forces and wiped that out and uh, continued. As a result, we're seeing more strong profits from a whole bunch of different companies in different industries. And we're also seeing year-end optimism. So, as I said, uh, S&P, I don't know, this could be the year for a record high for record highs. Uh, stock market advances following a recovery from fullbacks, not pullbacks, excuse me, uh, and this is historically speaking, uh, has had an average price gain of 8.4% over the following three months before slipping into a new decline of 5% or more. So, as I said, it looks as if, historically speaking, we've got a nice quarter ahead of us. Now, uh, just yesterday, giving you an idea of the uh, overall strength of the market, Tesla, Netflix, eBay, Microsoft all hit new all-time highs. Well, they weren't just up. They were at new all-time highs. And so far, the earnings have been killer. That's what's been driving the market uh, following two months of really not much going on. Uh, so far, uh, we've had of the 117 S&P companies that have reported their earnings, 84% of those folks 
have beaten the estimates from the analyst, and profits are on a pace to increase 34.8%, both of that data coming from uh, Refinitiv. And, uh, you know, as an aside, you know, they're talking about interest rates rising, and they are, but, uh, and they move, relatively speaking, significantly higher because inflation expectations are rising, and not out of hand, but they're going up. And, but the stock market right now is taking this in stride. Well, you know, so far it is suggesting that the higher interest rates aren't necessarily bad for the economy, and they aren't. It implies that people are using money. You know, that's what interest rates are, is the cost of money. And I think we're still in the early stages of any adjustment to higher interest rates. And I think the reality is, is that the economy will not be any real risk of higher rates until we see the short-term rates uh, much higher than what they are today, probably at around 3%. Now, again, for reference, uh, the 10-year closed at 1.6% yesterday. So, and again, they move kind of very in very small increments. So it'll be a while before we get to that number. And the yield curve, the difference between short-term interest rates and longer-term interest rates is... Uh, starting to steepen, which is suggested, well, which is good because it means that you're getting more risk for the longer term instead of the shorter term, which is kind of the way it should be. Now, a few of the uh, economic reports that came out this week, uh, weekly jobless claims, another uh, air pandemic era low, uh, the elimination of extra benefits has fewer people in the unemployment line. And we saw first-time filings for unemployment uh, at 290,000 folks. That's this last week. And this was the second week in a row that claims were below 300,000. Those are the lowest total since, guess what, the start of all this, March of 2020. Now, in Washington State, the employers added 17,600 jobs this in September. And uh, it says preliminary unemployment rate in the state, 4.8%. It was 5.2% in August and 7.8% a year ago, September. So the trend is our friend. Existing home sales, good news. Surprise to the upside in September. Largest monthly gain in a year and rising to the fastest pace since January. Now, since the bug hit, sales of existing homes have just, <laughs> I think it's fair to say, had a wild ride. Now it looks like the upward trend in sales may be returning despite buyers' ongoing struggle with higher prices and lack of supply. Now, right now, the numbers of listed, that is listed but unsold homes, was 1.27 million. That's the lowest number for any September on record going back to 1999. I guess that's when they started doing data. The expectation is, is that listings will soon move up again, at least on a seasonally adjusted basis as we uh, put this bug stuff more behind us. Just as an aside, have you noticed in the news, <laughs> you know how the media gets their, I don't know, hooks into some topic. Right now, to me, it seems like it's mostly inflation. That seems to be what the hooing and howing is all about. But the virus stuff is not so much being noticed. Have you heard that? Have you noticed that? Take a look. What do the headlines? You know, sure, they still talk about it, but it isn't, every story, every minute. So uh, I think uh, we're actually seeing this. Uh, the media is finally realizing that it is uh, sliding away. So, sorry. Uh, now, the supply for existing homes for sale, that's how long it would take to sell 
the inventory of existing homes at the current rate down to 2.4 months in September. That, again, remains near record lows. Now, despite these ongoing shortages of listings, there's still significant pent-up demand. I think that's pretty obvious. Buyer urgency was so strong in September, 86% of existing homes sold on the market in less than a month. And I think uh, it, you've heard many war stories where, I mean, it was like people are just going at it uh, right on the doorstep uh, trying to get some of these places. 712,000 single-family units are now under construction. That's the highest level since 2007. We've got 714,000 multifamily units under construction, the highest level since 1974. So the builders are working very hard to fill up that uh, demand uh, stream. Now, while busier than when the bug showed up, our friendly builders have been running against, uh, no surprise, supply chain problems and labor shortages. That limits how many houses they can build. And it's not just a matter of constraints that the bugs put on construction. The larger supply problem has been years in the making, of homes, that is. The housing bust, the 08 financial crisis left lasting scars that prevented a lot of people from taking the necessary step into home ownership and drove many small builders out of business. Could take years before the supply is adequate to meet demand, and that's a dynamic that could continue to put upward pressure on prices long after the building challenges are uh, in the wind, as it were. Now, just one other thing on the economy. Oil hit a three-year high on Thursday, above $86 a barrel. Tight supply, global energy crunch. Uh, and again, you know, it's just really increased demand and usage around the world. Uh, you know, the, the wind, solar, all that stuff, that only supplies 3% of the total global energy needs. So... If you're thinking that crude oil is old news, sorry, crude and natural gas will still be the major drivers of the economy uh, fuel sources for some time to come. I want to talk a little bit about 19, October 1987. Uh, and the reason I mention that, well, hopefully it will be obvious here in a second. But 34 years ago this past Tuesday, we had a little bit of a sale in the stock market. Uh, as a matter of fact, the market had its biggest one-day sale ever. The Dow dropped 508 points to close at 1783. Now, again, that's 1783. That's where the Dow closed. That's not a mistake. That's where it was in 1987. So you can imagine that a 500-point move kind of got everybody's attention. Now, a loss of 508 points is still a fairly big move. Today, though, it would represent a drop of 1.4% and maybe a minute or two of airtime. However, in 1987, it was much more significant. In percentage time terms, okay, I'm going to give you a minute to guess how did 508 translate, but the 1987 drop was a loss, one day, of 22.6%. Yowzer. So in today's Dow points, that would be a drop of 8,000 points. Do you think that would get a little airtime? Maybe a little. But that this is one good example of why in today's world especially, you should be looking in terms of gains losses, not in points, but in percentages, because that's really how you can tell how you're doing. Okay? So... Trading rules, which were put in as a result of that day, suggest that this drop 
may this record drop may never be broken because the exchange has rules now where the whole place shuts down if the S&P in one day drops by 20%. They're called circuit breakers. Now, let's consider a few facts surrounding that event. And I was in the business then, so um, I have an up-close and personal remembrance of it. This, the stock market had been doing really great. Uh, the bull market started in August of 82, and it had done well in 86 and 87. And really what happened in that one-day drop, it pretty much just gave back the previous few months of returns. And what the rest of the story usually is in 1987 that never gets talked about is that the Dow actually, after this 22% drop, closed slightly higher for the year. And it continued to go higher after that. Now, a little background. The Fed had started raising rates. And you know, that says we've been experiencing her in a very low way, uh, is that that's all, always a little painful for the market. Now, October 16th, which was a Friday prior, we had the Dow down 108 points. Now, again, that doesn't sound like a lot to us now, but it was about a 10, 12% drop, which was an all-time record drop then. <laughs> and then kind of uh, like, I don't know, ESP. On October 19th, the Wall Street Journal had run a chart which overlaid the recent market activity, the 1987 market activity, with the 1929 market activity, and that supposedly showed them following a similar path. You're seeing some of that with uh, among the unwashed now trying to sell you that same story. But, you know, I often see these similarly so-called scary charts. The trick is, is that the two lines follow totally different scales. I mean, it's apples and oranges. Sure, the numbers are different, but gosh, oh golly, folks, it's not the same. So on the 19th, Asian markets were lower. And then we had a messy open. I think that's a good way to say it. Uh, but in the early, losses weren't all that bad. Uh, but after 11-hour time, oh, baby, the losses started to pick up. In the final hour of trading, it turned into a just a sell-everything kind of thing. You know, I, I, I remember distinctly looking at my uh, quote machine, the machine we used to, you know, get prices on individual issues. And, you know, it was very similar to when you go to a gas station, you know, you just squeeze the handle, you watch the numbers flip around. That's what was going on in our quote machines, except that they were flipping on going down. It was um, a singularly unique experience. Now, you have to recall, understand, the market is a mob. It's a herd. It will no more, be no more wise or patient than any other mob or herd. Sir Isaac Newton, he said once, I can calculate the motion of heavenly bodies, but not the madness of people, unquote. Now, that's a pretty good idea to think about the next time you hear somebody's market forecast. Now, I think we got a couple lessons from 87. One, the market is fundamentally mysterious. There's never... No, never. There's no good or easy explanation for the market doing what it does, other than it does. You know, it's just because. You can use a lot of fancy math formulas and projections and all that stuff to model what the market might do, but it's all still a guess. You know, other than that, excuse me, yeah, there is that in reality from a long-term perspective. The 87 crash was a great time to buy. It was the perfect buy-low moment. 
And again, as I said, <laughs> the market still ended higher for the year in 87. So whenever you hear someone say to you today, this market reminds me a lot of 1987, you say, oh, thank heavens. Be inclined to respond. So you think we're going to get a 20 times rise over the next 30 years? And you know what? The data is actually starting to suggest a resolution in the direction of the underlying long-term trend, which is that is higher from here and probably a lot higher. You know, just because something happened in the markets once, that doesn't mean it's going to happen again. You know, it, it rhymes, but it doesn't repeat kind of thing. But as I was saying earlier, you just don't know. The markets can do, will do whatever they're going to do whenever they're going to do it. And that's why you spread your risk around. We've got a little time before the next break. So let's see what uh, some of the folks from around the country have to say about uh, the markets going forward. And uh, let's see, Sam Stovall, my buddy from uh, CFRA, who is chief investment strategist there, says the market continued its rally from last week with a weaker than expected producer price uh, reading and a better than expected bank earnings. Sam says, I think it's a combination of earnings. It's a month over month changes in inflation. It looks like it's peaking out and the effect of the bug is slowing way down. Well, he said virus. Uh, let's see. Favorable seasonal factors should also help power the market to new additional highs, unquote. Tom Lee from Fundstrat upped his S&P price target to 4,800, uh, citing declining virus cases and economic resilience. Uh, if it hits his number, that's up 7% from yesterday's close. You see, most risk assets peaked in the first quarter or, well, in the May, and have pretty much been sideways ever since then, as I'm sure anyone who has those issues can attest. So we haven't had a lot of movement. But lately, the bulls have started to take control of many of the trends. You're seeing more and more resolutions to the upside, and it's not just crude and interest rates and cyclical issues. Uh, oh, and uh, Jim Paulson, he of the Luthold Group, noted that for the past 20 years, the relation between inflation rates and profit margins has been positive. So companies may be better off than a lot of people seem to be worried about as they raise prices. Uh, Jim says, investors are understandably concerned about reports that inflation pressures are eroding profit margins and what that may mean for the market. He said, though, however, elevated inflation appears to bolster S&P 500 earnings on the whole. And that is not a bad thing. The biggest perceptual challenge is, is that it, inflation, it, it, that is, seems high today simply because it hasn't been a factor for so, so long. Excuse me. We've been, uh, the average inflation rate in the U.S. going back to the 1920s, average annual inflation rate has been 3% a year, okay, net average. So that includes the 80s when we were up in uh, Mount Everest territory, uh, and then in the last 10 years where we've been underground pretty much in terms of these things. So we've got the supply chain issues are putting big pressure on, on prices. That's true. We're not exactly sure when that's going to drop off. And while the port congestion gets all the news coverage, because there's a lot of dang boats out there, each step in the distribution process, from drivers to move the loads from the ports, 
trains available to take my across the country. You see those intermodals running through town and staff available to unroad at the warehouses. It's hard to find demand, uh, 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 to meet the demand for people. I read yesterday, uh, I forget who it was, some uh, trucking official says that they need 88,000 drivers to help break the jams at the uh, ports. So I don't, I don't know where that came from, but I'd say they need a lot of drivers, okay? Goldman Sachs says, and I'm quoting, uh, this is from David Costin, Despite near-term uncertainty, we expect the stock market will continue to rally as investors gain confidence that the current pace of inflation is transitory. Now, consumer prices are, since February 2020, before the bug, consumer prices are annually up at 3.7%. Now, the uh, uh, energy and food categories, which are not usually part of the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, because they fluctuate so much, they've been higher. They're more variable, absolutely, month to month. But that's where the problem lies. When the dust settles, inflation, I think, across the board, isn't going to go back to 0 to 2%, that's for sure. Uh, and that's where it's been for the last 10 years. Another, for instance, this past week, North American fertilizer prices uh, hit an all-time record. So that's going to affect food prices. Uh, I'm sure our friendly farmers are more than aware, more than well aware of that increase. And the political shutdowns of 2020 dumped sand in the gears of our, what is really an intricate free market system that brings components from all around the world to produce stuff from his pencils to com complex computers airplanes who knows what and while the producers were crippled demand has been boosted by an m2 money supply that's currently 34 percent above the bug levels before before february 2020 leaving both consumer and corporate folks with lots of cash now there's two kinds of money supply. M1 is cash, uh, checkable deposits, and traveler's checks. M2 is those things plus uh, savings and time deposits, CDs, and money market funds. So in other words, there's a whole lot of free cash floating around out there. And while most supply chain issues will ultimately be temporary, the huge increase in the money supply is what would drive inflation over the longer term. And the Fed is still putting money into the economy with the same levels of dollars today as it was when the economy was totally shut down last year. Uh, talking about doing tapering uh, starting in November, we'll see how that goes. Now, what matters most for the markets and the economy, I believe, is when the Fed lifts the Fed funds rate. And that's a long way off. The Fed funds rate is the interest rate that banks charge each other to borrow or lend reserves overnight. So it's, it is the shortest term interest rate that I'm aware of. And I think the labor market too has to heal considerably to get the Fed to consider lift off. But I think from your perspective, before you start making portfolio adjustments, it's important to remember that sustained periods of elevated inflation in this country are quite rare. People who are, let's just say, close to being full-grown, 
will remember the ultra-high inflation of the 1970s and early 80s. But in hindsight, it was clear that that was a very unique period. And if you go back and study interest rates well prior to that and since then, those those aberrations, I mean, they just aren't there. There's no precedent for it. So there's no requirement, if you will, for interest rates to go back to those levels. Over the past 100 years, inflation has stayed below 5% the vast majority of the time. More recently, uh, since the global crisis in 07 and 09, We've, you remember we were having trouble getting inflation to do anything, to hit 2% on a sustained basis. You see, if there is some inflation, we're going to get, that means that the economy is growing, people are using money to grow their businesses, and so on. So that's a good thing. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, you know, another important uh, point it's mostly at the extremes when inflation is at 6% or above that financial assets tend to struggle. Stocks have also come under pressure when inflation goes negative, as one would expect. That's what happened in the Depression. They had deflation. For investors, some inflation is a good thing. Even in times of higher inflation, stocks and bonds have generally provided solid returns. I see inflation as more of a result of monetary policy, you know, lots of money chasing few goods. As more goods come into the system, it'll be less of a problem. So leave us switch gears into, um, I think, one of the probably least uh, well understood and perhaps biggest benefits of investing, and that is dividends. What are dividends? It's a share of corporate profits from a business to its shareholders. Now, the size of the dividends, the frequency, all of that, is determined by a company's board of directors. Every company doesn't pay a dividend, nor do companies who pay dividends pay at the same rate. It's all based on, well, their industry, their business needs, and so on. <coughs> Excuse me, you know, I think very few people understand that the price you're paying to invest in something has far less of an effect on your long-term returns than something you might not have even noticed. And again, that's your dividends. But most especially, the reinvestment of those dividends. I have before me a chart, and once again, I hold it up to the microphone so you can see it real good. It shows a uh, 100 uh, from... 1871 to 2020, so now that's a fair stretch of time, no matter who's counting. And it says, you know, what's the total return that came from dividend reinvestment versus uh, just price appreciation in 40-year periods from 1871 to 2020? is that over a typical investment life, in other words, from when you first start investing throughout your retirement and so on, this is about 40 years, the vast majority of your gains will come from dividend reinvestment. 80% as a matter of fact, for those of you keeping score at home. Now, most folks, when they see dividends, um, they say, you know, that money that they're going to use, presumably, and that's fine. Um, but... 
for the money you're not using for cash flow and or if especially if you're pre-retired pre-retired almost for sure and after retired i would say it still should be applicable this dividend reinvestment thing if you have mutual funds well most investments offer dividend reinvestment when you sign up for mutual funds right off the bat you have the option to have your dividends and or any capital gains reinvested <laughs> that is I mean you gotta do that you just have to first of all it doesn't cost anything and it adds to your investment okay you know um, you, you know <laughs> I'm sorry this just it's hard to get across the importance of, of why you should be doing this because think think of them think as dividends as you know how you do like a bond or a CD think of them as interest payments okay they're riskier than bond payments for sure but they're interest payments from a business and when you reinvest those payments they start compounding ah the magic of compounding and you can really start building wealth you earn dividends that earn you more dividends that earn you more dividends etc 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 at some point, I've seen many uh, long-term portfolios where the dividends <laughs> are almost the same for what they paid for the shares in the first place. Now, I'm not talking about crazy stocks, you know, but for the most part, that that's easily doable. Now, here, here's the return thing. Here's the, here's the difference in return. You may recall before the break, we were talking about... Um, the vast majority of your gains coming from dividend reinvestment over time. Okay, if you had, and now this is going to be a little more real world, if you had invested in the U.S. stock market over a 40-year period from January 80 to January 220, and I think we can agree that there were some exciting times in there, your inflation adjusted, which is to say real return, would have been 791% in total. That's not chopped liver, is it? No. But catch this. When you include reinvested dividends, the return goes to, and I'm not making this up, 2,417%. In this instance, the return generated by the price was only a third of your total return when you reinvest the dividends. You see how this is really important for uh, uh, retired folks or pre-retired folks. You're building money for the future. You cannot do that with bonds. There is no reinvestment of bond interest. You just get it and that's it. But if you're getting dividends from your individual shares, from mutual funds, ETFs, whatever your advisor can tell you if such a an option is available for various and sundry investments sign up for it i mean it's to your advantage because you know when you have money at retirement there's think of it like a well you got a well in the backyard okay and um <laughs> my well's real simple to work but your water you, when you turn on the water in the house you're assuming it's good, of course. Uh, you're you're not worrying about where did it come from originally, right? 
You just want the water. Well, see, because water can come from rain. It can come from aquifers. It can come from snow. So just like your cash flow can come from dividends, from interest, from gains, all of that goes into your investment well, and you just draw it out when you need it. Okay, And if you're doing reinvested dividends, you have a way to replenish that pool. Whereas if you're using straight interest, you're just going to be dropping the bucket in and pouring it out onto the ground. You won't have anything left over. Okay, that that's that's why you do that. You know, you shouldn't, I believe, shouldn't focus on price as much as the dividends you're going to earn along the way. You know, they're hard to notice in the short run, but they're impossible to ignore in the long run. If you want uh, uh, some ideas, just for reference, go to uh, Google Dividend Aristocrats. Yeah, that's a category. And it'll show you companies that have paid dividends for 20 years, 30 years, whatever, in a row. Never missed a beat. And you can imagine that the total returns on those things has been quite good. Well, perhaps there are funds uh, that also include dividend aristocrats as a growth and income component of your portfolio. But let's even be more specific to the current tactical situation. We've got uh, the the oil business has been beat up for the last, cranky, I don't know what, six, seven years. Um, and the oil service business, these are the folks who provide what's needed to the drillers and explorers to get their stuff done, have also been under pressure, as you can imagine. Well, there's three companies, and I'm just saying them because there's three big companies. My son works in North Dakota in the oil field, so I know these guys. There's Halliburton, H-A-L. There's Schlumberger. <laughs> That's a French guy. They're S. L.B., Sierra Lima Bravo, and Baker Hughes, which is Bravo Kilo Romeo. Now, Halliburton pays the least dividend, only seven-tenths of a percent current yield. Schlumberger is one and a half, Baker's 2.9. But on average, those companies are at a 28% uh, reduction from their average uh, price to fund earnings. So they're undervalued, as they say. And I would suggest that as a consideration for your long-term investing, you know, looking at some of those kinds of companies uh, and putting them into your uh, longer-term portfolio could uh, offer you some, and they're an inflation edge because energy is an inflation edge. That's always a good thing. Um, so there you are. So just for as an idea. Now, I believe very strongly that this is the beginning of the next leg higher within a cyclical bull market. Because you can have sell-offs and adjustments and all that stuff in a cyclical bull market and still keeps going. Markets are finally beginning to find direction after this two-year chop fest. You know, yields, interest rate returns, if you will, have moved significantly higher in recent days. Inflation expectations are rising, okay. The stock market's taking in stride so far, and it suggests that higher rates are not necessarily bad for the economy. And I think we're still in the early innings of adjusting to that, but that's okay. The economy will not be at risk, real risk of higher rates, until that short-term rates are much higher than they are today. And again, 
uh, probably at three percent, and I said earlier at, we're currently at one point six five. So, and also consider copper. Copper, you say? Where am I talking about copper? Well, it's referred to as king copper because it's an, a material. It's a great leading indicating, uh, excuse me, great leading economic indicator, and critical to global growth. All I mean, it's used in everything. Um, there's a company based in Phoenix. It's called Freeport McMoran. Symbol is F Foxtrot Charlie X-Ray. Uh, they are, I think, if not the, but one of the biggest copper producers in the country, if not the world. Uh, so that might be a way for you, and also an inflation hedge, uh, a way to participate in a recovery. So if copper is outperforming gold, and it is, and the 10-year interest rate is rising, and it is, your course of action should be clear. You want to be buying stocks and commodities, not bonds. Again, you got dividends. And oh, by the way, dividends can be raised on an annual basis. Too true, they can be dropped on an annual basis as well, but not readily and not frequently. Interest rates went nowhere for 30 years from the 20s to the 50s, rose from the late 50s through the early 80s, and now they've been falling for 40 years or more. I know I'm not smart enough to know when the current cycle is going to end, so I avoid going to either extreme. Um, don't be greedy. Take the tender line. Take the 80%. Let the other guys follow with the top and lower 7.5% uh, at each end. Some investors are trying more comfortable trying to be a hero. I'm more comfortable locating my assets uh, by diversification and asset allocation and admitting my limitations. So I hope you have a great week. We'll be back next week uh, with more market news. I hope this has been helpful to you. This is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group, and you've been listening to Money Management. Opinions, forecasts, and case studies are for illustrative purposes only and may only be relevant at the time of recording. Certain sectors in the market, such as international and emerging markets, certain fixed income, including high-yield bonds, precious metals, mid- and small company securities, have greater risks that are generally outlined in their prospectus, contract, or offering document. Any guarantees or protections offered through insurance products or subject to the claims paying ability of the issuing insurance company. Diversification, asset allocation are no guarantees or protections against loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results and there is always risk associated with investment.